Hey everybody, Joseph here, one of the pastors at the First Presbyterian Church of Flint, and I wanted to welcome you to our sermon podcast, a show that features the latest sermons preached here at First Pres. But first, a little bit about us. The First Presbyterian Church of Flint is an historic downtown congregation, proudly part of the Presbyterian Church USA, the largest Presbyterian denomination in the United States. We have a vibrant and thriving ministry to our neighbors here in Flint and are engaged weekly in worship, faith formation, a dynamic ministry to kids and teenagers, and community building across generations. You can learn more at fpcf.org. You can check out our weekly live stream broadcasts on our channel on YouTube. But better yet, you can stop by any Sunday at 930 to worship with us. We'd love to welcome you and your family to worship. Now, here's this week's sermon. I speak to you in the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let the Church of Jesus Christ say, 180 gallons of joy. Today's gospel passage takes us to the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, at least as the Gospel of John remembered it. The Gospel of John was written by a community of people who had some sort of relationship with the disciple, also named John, who was one of Jesus' twelve disciples. The same John who, along with his brother James left their family fishing business, quite literally leaving their dad in the boat in order to become student followers, disciples of the 30-year-old rabbi named Jesus, who had come from Nazareth, a local boy from up north in the county of Galilee. And as the Gospel of John remembers Jesus' first public miracle, his first public sign, John does not remember Jesus preaching to a large crowd or telling a memorable parable or healing a sick person or casting out a demon or raising the dead. Instead, John reaches into his archives and remembers this wedding in a small village in called Cana, a village also up north in Galilee. John remembers that three days after Jesus had assembled his small little class of 12 disciples, there was this wedding up in Cana, and Jesus, his disciples, and his mother were invited to attend. Now, if you ask me, when put alongside some of Jesus' other miracles, this seems rather pedestrian, rather mundane. No one required Jesus to produce more wine. No, no life was at stake. It's a rather fascinating thing to kick off the ministry of Messiah, if you ask me. 
Now, Jesus and his family were from Nazareth, which was a sister town to Cana up north in the Galilee county of Judea. Proportionally and geographically, Cana was to Nazareth what New Lothrop is to Clio, or Clarkston is to Holly. Cana was a smaller town made up of mostly farmers up there to the northeast. Nazareth might have had a population of about 1,500, Cana a population of about 350. But people from Nazareth and people from Cana were part of the same region, the same county. They were all Galileans. They had those thick Galilean accents that gave them away. They depended on the same agriculture to sustain their businesses. They anticipated the same weather patterns. They shared the same cultural aphorisms and idioms. And being only a few miles away, folks in Nazareth were likely friends with folks from Cana. So it's no surprise to us when you read verse 1 that when the wedding began, Mary, the mother of Jesus, was a guest. And it's no surprise in verse 2 that we read that Jesus had been invited also. And if all of his disciples were local boys too, then that shouldn't surprise us that verse 2 says they were invited as well. And look, church, I'm just going to be honest with you. The people in rural Judea did weddings better than we do. (laughs) Today, a wedding and a reception is crammed into like a half day, beginning with a hasty three o'clock wedding ceremony, hurry up, preacher, and pronounce us, and ending at maybe midnight at the reception hall when the bride and groom have left and the DJ is out of music. In those days, the wedding itself was just the beginning, and as soon as the final blessings were said by the couple, the real celebration began, and what followed was a week-long, full-on feasting event open to the guests of the wedding. It was feasting every day for a whole week, the Shiva Brachot, the seven days of blessing. And this is still the case in some Jewish families. The bride and the groom take the week off after the wedding and are treated like royalty, by their guests and family. They attend get-togethers at various family members' houses that include more eating and drinking and celebration. If they leave their home, they are accompanied by a honor guard. And if one of them were to attend worship at the synagogue during the week, those in attendance would not pray prayers of confession in honor of the joyful presence of the newly married couple. Seven days of eating, parties, dancing, drinking, celebration, and joy. And why not? In Jewish tradition, marriage was the closest thing humans have to understanding God's covenant with Israel. Two people entering a solemn union of blessing, forging their separate identities into a new common life in unity, setting boundaries, making vows. This was an important thing. It was a sacramental thing, and so the party lasted for seven days to mirror the seven days of creation. Our neat and tidy eight-hour nuptial celebrations seem a bit wimpy. 
when compared to our Jewish ancestors in faith. For those of you who are here and who planned either your own wedding or one of your children's weddings, I just want you to think for a moment about trying to plan ahead for seven days worth of food and drinks and music and entertainment. Imagine the spreadsheets. You have no real assurance of who's going to show up to what gathering, how much food you're actually going to need, where you're going to sit everybody, and so forth. And so it should come really as not a surprise that it's probably a big deal when Mary comes to Jesus and makes one of those sort of observations that might really be requests. They're out of wine. They're out of wine. It's the vinyl screeching halt to the party. Someone did not plan ahead enough. Somebody did not purchase enough wine. Or, as one scholar humorously suggests, someone named Jesus showed up to the party with a plus 12. And, uh, and maybe they had more than their fair share. Who knows? All we know in the story is that Mary watches the last glass being poured. She notices it even before the party's host, and she mentions it to Jesus. Now, I'm not sure what Mary really thought Jesus was going to do. I don't know that Jesus had, like, at home, like, made water into wine. Like, this is, like, a common thing he does. I don't think so. But Mary reports it anyway to Jesus. I think she knew he could do something, or maybe she just wanted to share the news. But in hushed tones, in order not to raise a ruckus, Mary speaks to Jesus. And it's true that having enough food and wine in those days was immensely important, because it's an honor and a shame culture. And if you didn't have enough for your guests, then your family name would have been tarnished you would have been the talk of the town. It was a, you would have carried deep shame with you for a while. There's actually evidence of people uh, taking and winning legal action against a host who didn't provide enough food and drink. Uh, next time you're invited over to Jack McCarthy's house, make sure he has enough. Sue him if he doesn't. <laughs> At the very least, the reputation of this family is at stake. People would remember that they were cheap and stingy, or worse, that they were inhospitable to their guests. So Mary whispers to Jesus in one of those telling whispers, they're out of wine. And Jesus says back, perhaps equally in a whisper, what is that to you and me, is what it says in Greek. But put differently, why should we care? Like, this isn't our party. How does this involve us? And in, on the one hand, Jesus is right. This isn't his family. These are acquaintances from a sister town. What's the social fallout for Mary and Jesus if the party ends prematurely? Jesus is 30. He's just getting ready to start a preaching and healing ministry that's going to usher in and inaugurate God's kingdom on earth. He himself is the glory of God made manifest as a human being. Is he Properly, is it right for him to be properly concerned with the wine at a poorly planned party? It all seems so disconnected from his vocation as Messiah. 
Why is this important to us? Jesus asks. Now, perhaps his mother gave him one of those looks mothers give sons when they've misunderstood that the observation the mother has made is more than a request. It's an instruction. Like when my wife says to our older boys, there are groceries in the car. Not just making a statement. Or there are folded clothes on the stairs. Or your pajamas are still in the bathroom. All of these carry with it a certain mm, go-and-fix-the-problem energy. What they mean is do something about this. Jesus realizes that Mary wants him to solve the problem. Fine, but he warns Mary his hour had not yet arrived. My hour has not yet come. Throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus is going to talk about his hour, and when it arrives, and it will not arrive until he is about to mount the cross. That is Jesus's hour. That is the time when his glory is on full display, and Jesus says, this isn't that, and I don't want to prematurely kickstart that. There's still a lot that's left to be done. My hour has not come. In other words, fine, I'll fix this problem, but it's going to be done quietly. This wedding is not where my glory will fully be revealed. It's too early for that. And so, in verse 5, Mary calls over some servants and instructs them to listen to Jesus. And they fill up six 30-gallon stone jars with water. These jars are used for the purification rites that normally accompanied weddings or other celebrations. The water was captured by falling rain. It was considered to be clean water. And that water was ceremoniously applied to ladles and bowls and plates and utensils, as well as to the skin of the faithful to cleanse them and prepare them for worship or celebration. But at this moment, when the wine had run out at the party, at this moment, those jars were standing there empty. Cleansing rites had already taken place leading up to the wedding, and the jars sat there idle. Nobody was thinking about those empty jars in the corner. Jesus tells them, fill the jars. And so they fill them up to the brim, the text says. Now, where they got the water to do that is unclear. Though Cana at the time had a remarkable number of cisterns carved out to catch rainwater, and so maybe the cisterns were filled, and it was a simple but laborious task to drag a 30-gallon stone jar over to a cistern and fill it with water and then haul it back to the party. We should footnote the story here and just say several hours later, they make it back with all the water. So we get to verses 8 and 9, and Jesus tells them, draw some out and take it to the head waiter, the chief steward. And the steward tasted the water that had become wine. He didn't know where it came from, though the servants 
new. He tasted the water that had become wine. That is the entire description of the miracle in this text. There's no prayer. There's no invocation. There's no ritual touching of the water at all. The text doesn't say Jesus passed his hand over the jars or he tapped it with his staff. None of that. Fill the jars with water, draw some out, and take it to the chief steward. They do so, and somewhere in the middle of that, it is now turned into wine. Stealthily done, Jesus! Now, church, pay attention here. If the jars held 30 gallons each, and if they were filled to the brim, and if all the water inside each jar became wine, then you're looking at about 180 gallons of wine. Something like 750 bottles. 750 bottles of wine. At, at a wedding like this, at the very least, that's two bottles per guest. After the original batch of wine had already run out. And based on verse 10, this is not just watered-down wine. The head waiter tastes it. He, he swirls it around in his glass. He sniffs deeply at the bouquet of aromas. He peers into its richly red body. He tastes it the way a sommelier might taste it, and he is amazed. This is the good stuff. He asks the groom, what's the deal? He says people usually serve the good wine first, and then once folks are, you know, drinking freely, they pull out the watered-down stuff, but you have saved the best wine until now. And the story ends with this report that this was Jesus' first sign. He revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. What are we going to do with this unusual text? In the Gospel of John, glory is always used to describe God's presence. When glory was revealed in Jesus, John is telling us that in this moment of alchemical transformation, transubstantiation, of multiplication, something of God's nature, and God's character was present. The tasting of that wine was now a sacramental moment. Jesus revealed his glory. He revealed something about the indwelling presence of God. He revealed something about the identity and character of God. Perhaps one of the things we can take away from this is that we need not worry about taking our cares and concerns to Almighty God. We might need to be reminded that we do not need to be afraid that our problems, however mundane they might feel in relation to others, that our problems are not beneath the dignity of God. They are not too trivial for God's preoccupation. God's glory is often revealed in our weakest moments when our water jars are empty. God's glory is often revealed in what we might otherwise consider trivial manners. 
in the odd places of our life. God's presence is often made known to us in ways that we might not consider or even notice. Think about it in this way. Of all the people in this story in John, only the servants and the disciples knew where the, wa- where the wine had come from. Only they knew of the miraculous, glory-revealing power of Jesus. The, the chief steward assumed that the groom had a hidden reserve of wine. The groom was clueless. The guests, they really weren't astonished at all because they were a little bit tipsy already, and they really weren't even aware of what was going on in the jars behind the house. But they enjoyed the blessing, all of them. So it is with the way of God. God, in hidden ways and maneuvers, reveals his glory to us, showing us that just like a wedding host receiving 750 bottles of fine wine when all hope was lost, so too does God show up in our life when our spiritual wine has run out and all we have left are empty jars sitting in the corner of our home. I don't know what has made your jars of joy run dry these days, but I feel those empty jars in my life. I I see others experiencing what looks to be joy and gladness, and I don't know how it's possible. I I feel worn down. I don't know if you're feeling worn down today. I feel beset by a number of things. I wonder if you feel beset by things in your life. There are aches in our families. There are cracks in our foundations. There are things that are happening in the life of those we love. We can't fix. We feel estranged from our own family members. There is disconnection and sorrow happening in our world and in our communities and our neighborhoods. And it's, it's enough to make the jars of joy we thought would last run empty. And so maybe what we each need to hear today is that God does not give up on empty jars. God can use them to replenish the whole party. And so maybe as we, on this annual meeting Sunday, when we start looking backwards and looking ahead, maybe we need to be reminded of this miracle of God to be reminded that God shows up, and when God shows up, he shows up with effusive grace and joy. There is a gratuitous nature to the presence of God, something that overwhelms, doesn't just meet the need, but vastly exceeds expectations. And maybe we can trust that the God who has brought us this far will refill our jars with the best wine. As we wait and as we hope and as we pray in that way, might we be reminded that the joy God gives us is not for us to hoard. It is for us to share even with people who have no idea how it came to be. I speak to you in the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let the Church of Jesus Christ say, Amen.